Happy Thursday, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of Long Story Short. I'm Kate Midden, and ahead of elections in Venezuela this weekend, we thought it would be an appropriate time to talk about the humanitarian situation unfolding in that country, the crisis that has been unfolding for a while now. We are joined by DC reporter Teresa Welsh. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So before we get started, I do want to read a couple statistics, just a few numbers to really illustrate what we're talking about here. Uh, at present, 90% of Venezuela is existing, living below the poverty line. 1.2 million people have already fled the country in the last few years alone. In 2018, we're expecting a 13,000% inflation rate, and that's just by the end of 2018. And the average Venezuelan has lost 24 pounds because of rampant food insecurity in the last year alone. Um, it is against that backdrop that Venezuela is heading into these elections. You have been covering this very closely. Can you just go ahead and give us some background and the lay of the land of what things look like right now heading into Sunday's elections? So the elections are being held um, on Sunday. Venezuelan President Nicolas Maduro is moving forward with them um, despite calls from the international community um, to postpone them due to the situation in the country. Uh, the opposition party is not going to participate in the elections, um, so they obviously are also calling for postponement. Um, but the situation in the country has been de deteriorating rapidly over the past several years. Um, Maduro took over from his predecessor, uh, President Hugo Chavez, who's a socialist, and he uh, implemented a bunch of social programs. Um, the uh, poorer populations of Venezuela um, really supported him, um, and he did improve a lot of lives, but essentially the state got to a place where it was spending much more money than it had, and it's a very oil-rich state, very reliant on oil dollars. And a the, lot, there's a lot of speculation that the high price of oil was actually masking a lot of these policies that were really deteriorating the economy. Exactly. And so we've seen the global price of oil also tank. And so Venezuela's um, essentially one huge export is no longer worth as much as it's worth. Um, and so we now are in a place where there's massive inflation, as you mentioned, um, rampant food insecurity. People go to stores and there just literally is not anything on the shelves to buy. Um, and people don't have access to medicine. The healthcare situation is really deteriorating in the country. Um, they've seen several diseases um, that have previously been eradicated popping back up. People don't have access to basic medication for diabetes, let alone if uh, someone had a more serious condition like cancer. And so um, people are fleeing the country. In, in an earlier conversation, we were talking about this, about how you know this crisis is really exacerbating also existing inequalities within the country. You had mentioned that kind of people who were pretty well off could see some of this coming a while ago and had left. The people who couldn't leave are still there and there's just nowhere to turn. Exactly. So the wealthier populations, which had never been a fan of Chavez um, or his um, successor, uh, essentially because their policies were to take their money and give it to poor people. Um, they fled several years ago, um, a lot of them landing back in Spain, um, those that could come to the United States did so, Mexico, Chile, Argentina, um, they had the uh, wealth to be able to do that um, and are now living their lives um, as expatriates in other countries. Um, then you sort of saw the middle class start to go, you know, people that had less resources to, you know, finance an international move and uprooting their entire lives. But again, seeing that the situation in the country is untenable. And now we're in a position where the very poorest 
um, are fleeing because they are watching their children starve in front of their eyes. You know, this is all, I mean, exacerbated by, complicated by the fact that Venezuela refuses to accept any foreign aid. Exactly. So um, the Maduro government does not take aid um, from the international community because it essentially is denying that there is any problem. Um, so the United States um, just last week pledged an additional $18.5 million to address this crisis, but those funds are going towards the neighboring nation of Colombia because they are dealing with the brunt of this exodus of people from Venezuela. Colombia plays a particularly interesting role. You had published a story in the past couple of weeks about how there was a lot of speculation within the international community that uh, Venezuelans were fleeing to go to Colombia because Colombia is getting aid. Can you unpack that a bit? Because you know, to me, that doesn't feel like a solid argument. If you are someone who is watching your child on the verge of stunting, your family has no money. You know, what po I would imagine what pops into one's head is not, oh, Colombia has aid, but I just need to get out. Exactly. And so I think for a time, the international community was thinking, we're going to be able to contain this crisis and be able to respond within Venezuela itself and sort of prevent it from spilling across borders. But because the government is not accepting any aid, that just has not been possible. And so along the Colombian border, um, and people are also fleeing into Brazil, I should mention, but um, Colombia is a more popular destination, um, I think majorly for the reason because it's also Spanish speaking, so it's just going to be easier for people to get along in Colombia than in Brazil. But Brazil is also dealing with a massive influx of people. Um, um, but How many people are we talking about? So it's really hard to say. Um, there are estimates saying about three to five thousand people um, are coming into Colombia every day to stay. Um, but the number of people that are crossing the border just for the day or perhaps a couple of days and then returning to Venezuela is massively higher. That estimate is around 50,000 people. So you have people that come in um, perhaps to um, beg for money on the street, to try to get a job dishwashing, to try to sell things on the street, or just to try to purchase some things and bring them back into Venezuela, which is pretty difficult depending upon the way in which you're crossing the border. Have you heard anything about how local development organizations are handling this? I mean, I want to get into the international community's response to this in a minute. Um, any insights? So it's really difficult um, for local organizations on the ground because they obviously also don't have any resources. And a lot of those organizations um, you know, typically partner with the huge international NGOs and that money just cannot be funneled into Venezuela right now. So the brunt of the response really is across the border in Colombia and Brazil, as well as other host countries um, in the region where people are coming. And that actually gets back to the numbers, why it's sort of so difficult to tell how many people are fleeing and where they're ending up and what sort of services they need because not everyone wants to settle in Colombia. People are also using it to, you know, cross the border and then move on to other nations. So a lot of people are ending up in the Caribbean, um, Chile, Argentina, uh, Ecuador. And so it's just really difficult to tell sort of where people are going and therefore how to respond and provide services that people need. So when we step back and look at the international community's involvement and we talk about organizations like the United Nations, um, the UN's humanitarian branch, the Organization of American States, what role are they playing in this response? What role are they able to play? So the international community has 
been pretty ineffective in responding to this crisis so far. Um, the OAS, um, Organization of American States, has continually had meetings on Venezuela. Um, you know, a lot of the countries are saying we need to fix this crisis because, of course, it has started to impact them. So there were sort of rumblings when it was clear that Venezuela um, was starting to crumble, but it hadn't quite yet reverberated to their own borders yet. And now that countries are seeing it within their own country, they obviously really want to deal with the crisis. But um, the OAS has been largely ineffective in actually making that happen. They have a lot of meetings. They haven't really been able to come up with anything. There's a coalition of countries called the Lima Group that has been working on this issue. But there are other countries in the OAS um, that sort of fundamentally uh, disagree with the organization's um, sort of even right to be talking about this because they say it's an issue of sovereignty. And I do want to tease that out a little bit because you know, it only takes one country to destabilize a region. So you would think that that might be a time where international cooperation and particularly international regional cooperation would become really important just, you know, for the sake of that region's future. So you brought up this point about sovereignty. How does that play into the conversation and what else is it that's keeping that cooperation from happening? Well, there are a couple countries, as I mentioned, Bolivia probably being the um, biggest supporter of Venezuela. And every time there's an OAS meeting about Venezuela, the Bolivian representative um, objects at the beginning of the meeting and basically says, we all don't even have the right to be discussing this in this forum. Um, but for bordering countries, it's of course particularly frustrating, like Colombia, that you know wants to see sort of a more coordinated international response to this, but they haven't really been able to make anything happen. And, you know, Colombia, of course, just coming out of decades of its own civil war and actually now welcoming back in um, its citizens that had previously fled to Venezuela when that was the more prosperous country when Colombia was in the midst of war. So you now have Colombia obviously not only um, welcoming in uh, a massive amount of Venezuelans, but some of its own actual Colombian citizens that had left the country and had been living abroad and now are coming back. So they're, you know, obviously quite frustrated, sort of they're just coming out of this civil war period, had signed this peace agreement in the country, you know, doing really well economically, sort of looking to move ahead and now has this massive crisis on its border. Closing the door to a, a generation of turmoil only to turn around and have this on their doorstep. Exactly. So you mentioned earlier the role of the U.S. and the U.S. has taken some pretty hefty stances on this. Um, I would like you to just delve into that a little bit. Like what is what more is the U.S. saying about this, and what does that mean for the region? So the United States uh, last week, actually, for the first time, um, said publicly that um, Nicolas Maduro, the president of Venezuela, has got to go. So that's the first time that a U.S. official um, has said um, essentially that the U.S. is calling for regime change. Um, Ambassador Nikki Haley said that last week in a speech um, here in Washington. And um, the U.S. government has generally been... Um, very hesitant to speak out like that. Um, the Venezuelan government is quite good at taking any such comments um, and spinning them domestically and essentially blaming the United States for the economic situation that it's in right now, um, for the collapse of the country, and you know, always accusing the United States of trying to stage a coup and um, basically blaming everything on the U.S. So the U.S. has recognized that that's not particularly helpful, particularly for all of these civilians that um, 
cannot feed themselves. And so the U.S. has mostly been addressing this issue via humanitarian aid. So actually last week, um, on the same day that Haley made those comments, the U.S. pledged an additional $18.5 million to Colombia to deal with this crisis. So I want to ask you what $18.5 million gets you in a crisis of this scale. But I do want to take a second for anyone who is tuned in a little bit later to let you know that I am Kate Midden here with Teresa Welsh talking about the crisis in Venezuela and what it means for the humanitarian community. So, 18 and a half million. What does that what does that do? So like they're really focused on addressing um, people's most basic needs. Um, Colombia um, actually has been lauded by the international community for the way that it is dealing with this and um, really trying to integrate people into society as quickly as they can. Um, they are in the midst of conducting um, what they're calling a census, essentially, of the population. They want to know how many people they have and what they need. And so they're working on sort of addressing that, um, but they have got um, Venezuelan kids in their school system. Um, they've got Venezuelan kids in their daycares. Um, they're treating massive amounts of Venezuelan patients in their hospitals. You know, some with more serious conditions than others, but, um, you know, some people just coming for, as I mentioned previously, diabetes drugs, which ought to be something that's, you know, pretty straightforward, um, but people haven't had access to that in their own country. So the Colombian government basically is trying to get a handle on what people need, and then they're better going to be able to allocate those funds. And how has that been playing out? Are there any early indicators of the impact of this kind of influx on Columbia's short-term and longer-term development? So as I was saying, it's obviously sort of a very delicate time for the Colombian society. And, you know, I think the Colombian government is frustrated that this is happening, but also is dealing with it the best they can. And Colombia has seen massive economic gains um, over the last decade or so, um, almost two decades. Um, there's really been a lot of improvement. And so I think there is a bit of anxiety that um, this could perhaps damage that progress. But um, I think there's also sort of a recognition in Colombian society um, that for so long, you know, they were welcomed in neighboring Venezuela and that country was doing better. And now they sort of have a responsibility to welcome people back. And actually the region as a whole has been lauded for that and sort of um, the ability of the, the countries to welcome in these refugees, even if political leaders really haven't been able to, to negotiate a fix. So all of this sounds very bleak and obviously a lot of work happening right now to try to figure out what exactly to do. Are there any, I don't want to say solutions because there's no magic bullet that can bring 1.2 million people back to a very prosperous Venezuela overnight, but are we seeing anything that is working with this response? I know we've talked about how the UN has not been effective, how the Organization for American States has not been able to take a real leadership role in this. Are we seeing anything that's working? So I guess in terms of what's working, um, just uh, I think the ability of the Colombian government really to get out in front of this. And um, some of that infrastructure was already on the ground because of the humanitarian aid organization's ongoing presence in the country for so long while it had its own crisis. And so sort of a lot of those networks um, had already been in place and now sort of are enacted again to deal with this whole influx of people. And what do those networks look like? So basically just ongoing relationships between humanitarian aid organizations, um, you know, having open flows of communication with the government and people People sort of knowing, um, you know, how to operate in that environment, where to get the supplies that they need, um, you know, how to deal um, with people in that climate, et cetera. 
If you have any questions, please feel free to either tweet them at us using hashtag DevXTV or leave them in the Facebook comments. All right, aside from Columbia, looking ahead, or Columbia's engagement and kind of the early, lightly positive signs we can see, what do things look like looking ahead? I mean, what do we see any indicators of what Venezuela looks like a year from now, five years from now? So it is honestly really impossible to know, um, you know, the fact that the Venezuelan government is moving ahead with this election on Sunday is not a great sign. Um, as I mentioned, there have been international calls for them to put off the election um, so the opposition party can participate. Um, there are lots of political prisoners in Venezuela. Um, several opposition figures um, are jailed. Um, the justice system is essentially a sham. Um, and from where we're sitting right now, it looks like things are going to continue to get worse, as bleak as that sounds. And, you know, there's a group, um, you know, of ma a massive group now of Venezuelan expats, because you've had all these people flee the country, you know, that are starting to think about, okay, what would reconstruction look like when that's a possibility? But an example of sort of the intractability of situations like this is Cuba, where, you know, of course, after the Cuban revolution, people said, there's no way this is going to last. Um, you know, it's a small island. They're a communist. You know, they're cut off from the international community. It's going to collapse. And here we still are. And it feels like people say that about every humanitarian crisis at the outset. You know, Syria is just going to flare up and die down and the Arab Spring, you know, will become summer and that will be that. And mm -hmm. Yemen, things are flaring up, they look bad, but it's not going to be ongoing. And now it's something like 80% of Yemen's kids might be stunted. I mean, I feel like that's a very, I believe it's 80%, but fact check me on that. Um, I'd feel like that's a very common refrain. And I think that might be just because it's it's sort of the easier and more optimistic thing to say, right? Like, oh, this is terrible now, but it's going to be better. It's It'll be stop. fine. It'll stop. It's fine. But I think that's also a recognition of just sort of the moment that our entire globe is in right now with all of those crises, in addition to this in Venezuela that you just mentioned. And, um, you know, I think the Venezuela crisis actually doesn't really get as much publicity as Syria, as Yemen. Um, and here it is in the Western Hemisphere, you know, it's a neighbor of the United States and people aren't really talking about it. Any insights about why that might be? Honestly, I think people are tired. And I think... Um, Crisis fatigue. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, you know, obviously we have a very, you know, complex and different time domestically in the United States right now. And I think people just honestly don't have the capacity um, to think about it. Yeah. It has been reported periodically in the past months that a number of private sector companies that are very familiar to an international audience, so particularly our US audience, Kellogg, Colgate, Kimberly-Clark have all pulled out, uh, pulled their operations out of Venezuela. And that really struck me. I mean, I, I don't know if those companies have any kind of, you know, humanitarian mission in any part of their organizations. It's very possible they don't. But in a time in our industry where there's so much talk about private sector involvement, um, you know, looking to business as a means of financing, I feel like we're not hearing 
uh, from a lot of businesses talking about trying like trying to get involved. Yeah, and I think that's a testament to really how bleak the situation is in the country. And because of the government's socialist policies, it has become increasingly more difficult for international companies to operate there because they're never quite sure um, if their assets are going to get seized, if their products are going to reach where they're supposed to be. And it's obviously become also a very difficult market to sell in because inflation is so massively high, people can't get products on the shelves. And I think it's also probably a safety issue for people that have got employees there. The situation is just so untenable. Right, right. So not, not a criticism of trying to keep employees safe, but just sort of a wider, a wider observation that you tend to see big companies kind of jump in when a humanitarian crisis is an earthquake or something that is sort of a natural disaster, but when it gets kind of tenuous and political, it feels like they're very obviously absent. Yeah. So you are obviously keeping a close eye on all of this. What are some things that you're looking at in your reporting? Well, I think sort of moving ahead how the region really is going to respond to this. So a lot of the um, international organizations, UN, um, US government actually has sort of said this needs to be a regional response. And part of that coming from the US, I think, gets back to what I was saying sort of about the it's generally unproductive for the US to take the lead on these kinds of things when it comes to Venezuela because of the government's ability to sort of spin that domestically and it just ends up being very counterproductive. And so it really has to be um, a regional response. And um, that, as we talked about, has so far been really, really difficult. And so I think, um, you know, as this continues, um, we're going to be watching Colombia, sort of what the results of the census that they're conducting are, if that gives us any better handle of how many people really are there, how many people intend on staying, and um, sort of how we go about integrating them um, into Colombian society, into the economy, because of course that's a huge problem we see, right? When you have a massive um, influx of refugees as people generally aren't given access to the economy. And so that makes it really hard um, to survive there. And I think Colombia recognizes that and is trying to figure out how it can sort of stave off that problem of having this massive population that can't earn their own money and therefore has to rely on aid because no one wants to rely on aid. Right, of course. I mean, and it sounds like a case of looking ahead that at some point when it's no longer a humanitarian crisis, you know, we always talk about bridging the divide between humanitarian and development. And that might be a place where we could hear more conversations about things like cash transfers and other programming like that. Any early, any early thoughts or, um, or sentiments that you're hearing about that? Well, I think the um, it's really positive that the government of Colombia is so on top of this. Um, you know, we've seen in the Middle East sort of what the repercussions of having these massive influx of refugees are. And, um, you know, different countries have had varying amounts of success sort of based upon, you know, the programs that they are implementing, like cash transfers, sort of how they're giving people the opportunity to integrate themselves into the economy. Um, and if I had to guess, I would say the Colombian government is probably not wild about having to integrate all of these people, but they recognize the necessity of it. And I think that's a productive first step rather than trying to pretend it isn't happening. Yeah. Teresa, thank you so much for joining us. And for folks who want to keep on top of your reporting, who want to follow you, where can they find you? Um, so I'm on Twitter at TMA Welsh, W-E-L-S-H. And then of course you can find all my stories on devx.com. 
All right. Thank you. And be sure to follow us at www.twitter.com slash devx and on Facebook. As Teresa mentioned, all of our updates and coverage will be live on devx.com. Next week, we will be joined by our reporter, Jenny Livavello. Uh, at the World Health Assembly, we will be broadcasting live from Geneva. So join us at noon Geneva time next Thursday. Thank you for joining us.